when you get into atonement discussions, the way it's typically happened in the last 150 years is, all right, here's these options of theories. And you have the penal substitution theory and you have the Christus Victor theory and you have the moral exemplar theory. And you've got to choose which one of those you think is right. And the problem is what they do is they try to force us to choose between truths of scripture. Did Jesus satisfy the wrath of God or did he defeat demons and Satan? Or did he display his love on the cross as an example for us? Man, I want to be able to go to scripture and say, clearly he did all of these things. Jeremy Treat is the pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality LA, a church in Los Angeles, California. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University, and he has a PhD from Wheaton College. Jeremy's the author of several books, and his latest book is called The Atonement, an Introduction, which was put out by Crossway Publishing as part of their series of short studies in systematic theology. In this episode, Jeremy and I talk about the doctrine of the atonement, what it means, and why it's so central to Christianity. We also talk about some common errors that people commit when thinking about the atonement, and how many of these errors are due to a view of the atonement which is reductionistic. We also talk about the practical implications of those different reductionist views of the atonement. Jeremy believes that the best narrative in which to understand the atoning work of Jesus is that of the kingdom of God in light of the entire story that the Bible tells. He explains what that means in this episode. It's a rich one theologically, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Here's the episode. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for being on the podcast today. It's great to be here with you. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about yourself who you are, where you serve, what's been your journey up to this point? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in Alaska, lived there till I was 12, and then Seattle after that. My wife and I have been in Los Angeles for over, just a little over 10 years now. So we have four daughters, they're eight to 13. So I love them. And I pastor at a church called Reality LA, which is, God's done a great work. And I'm I'm privileged to be a part of it. We're in the heart of the city and preach the word and feed the hungry and pray for God to bring gospel renewal all over. And then I get to teach at Biola University a little bit on the side. So teach theology there, mostly to freshmen, which is fun. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's cool. Yeah. So we have a mutual friend, Tim Chaddock. He's been on this podcast as well. And I was actually at your church, man. I'm trying to think of the year. It was probably like 2013. We had a weekend in LA and we went to the church there in Hollywood and it was great. Are you guys still meeting in the same place in the school? Yeah. So we meet in the school in the mornings and then we have our own building now that we call the Hope Center and we do an evening service there. So we do both of those. But yeah, we have a great relationship with the school. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. I've been to a lot of churches that met in schools and I thought that, man, reality felt like like a different level of school usage. So I was impressed. (laughs) Well, it's great. I mean, we've been meeting there since the school was built. We actually started meeting in the school before students even came in because the school was built in 2008 and we started in the summer. And so, yeah, we just go way back with them. And it's it's a beautiful school. It's a great place to do church. The auditorium is beautiful. We have good space for kids ministry. And yeah, we love it. That's cool. So where did you do your theology studies? 
I mean, man, I've I've bounced around. I so I started my undergrad at Biola, but then I ended up graduating from Seattle Pacific University. And then I did a I did a master's at Fuller, which was it was Fuller Northwest at the time. Uh, and then I did another master's at Trinity Evangelical School in Chicago. And then I did my PhD at Wheaton College. Okay. Nice. Yeah. My next interview is with Dr. Philip Riken, who's the the president of or yeah. is he called the president? Is that the oh, title? Yeah, yeah he's okay. the president. Yeah. Yeah, Riken's great. He's I have so much respect for him. He's an amazing man, a godly leader, and he's got a great jump shot. A lot of people don't know that about <laughs> Riken. He he I we used to play intramural basketball together when I was there and that, that's how I got to know him a little bit. So he's a great guy. Nice. Okay, so your book, it's part of a series of short studies in systematic theology, Mm -hmm. but what impressed me about it is that it doesn't read like many other systematic theologies that I've read. It reads more like a devotional book. Mm. Um, Now, I notice it does have some classic features of systematic theology, like on page 28, I like that there was like this whole list uh, from all over the Bible of the things that sin does. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that sense, you know, that's one of like more classic feature of a systematic theology but I was just curious, like any thoughts on this approach to writing systematic theology and who is this book designed for? Yeah, well, man, I'm I'm really encouraged that you say it read devotionally because that's not something that you hear about a lot of theology books. And yet that's my hope. I mean, I believe that theology is for life, theology is for the church, and it should it should really theology should lead us to worship and praise and deeper intimacy with God. And so I definitely think that's the role of theology in general. And this book, especially, I'm trying to write theology for people in the church. When I wrote this book, I thought of somebody in my church who would say, I want to get into theology. Where should I start? Like, start here. This is a core Mm -hmm. doctrine. And I'm trying to write it in a way that you understand the depths of it. So we we need to make you work a little bit and get into some of that renewal of the mind but also in a way that's practical and engages with our hearts and applies to our lives. So that's the way I tried to write it. And yeah, I mean, hopefully hopefully, people who are getting into theology read this and think, oh, this is what theology is. And, you know, there's obviously a, a time and place to get more technical, but I do think that the natural habitat for theology is in the church and that people in the church should be engaging at that level. Yeah, that's great. So how would you define atonement? Yeah, so I mean, atonement is, you have this this English word atonement that breaks down into at-one-ment. And when we talk about the doctrine of atonement, we're, we're traditionally talking about how God reconciles sinners to himself through the death of Christ. And the the that's where the at one how does god make sinners at one with himself when they've been torn apart by sin what i try and do in the book is is expand that a little bit i i affirm that traditional approach but then expand it and saying we're in two ways we're talking about the death of christ but you can never isolate the death of christ from uh, the incarnation the resurrection the ascension of christ so i want to place it within that broader spectrum of the work of christ And then I also want to say, we're not just talking about reconciling God and sinners, but God reconciling the world to himself. So through the cross, you have the at-one-ment of God and sinners, but also heaven and earth. 
It's the, the story between God and humanity is central throughout the biblical narrative, but it's, it's not the whole. God is redeeming creation. And so in the doctrine of atonement, we get into that. So that's, that's how I understand the doctrine of atonement. I, th- I think it's really the church's faith-seeking understanding. That's what theology is. We're trying to understand what we believe. And we're, it's that faith-seeking understanding of what it means that Jesus died for our sins, right? Like if I was talking to this to somebody in the church and they say, well, why, don't, why do we need all this stuff? We'd say, well, what does it mean that he died for our sins? Lots of people, die, everyone dies. Lots of people died by crucifixion. But we're saying that the death of one man actually changes the trajectory of human history. And that I would say it's the climax of the world's story. So what happened uh, when he died on the cross that actually altered human history in that way? So that's what we're getting into with the doctrine of the atonement is the meaning of Christ's death and um, what he accomplished. Yeah. So I know that there has been some controversy over the years regarding different views of atonement. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe share with our listeners like, okay, why is it important to have a correct understanding of atonement? What are some ways in which the atonement has been taught or ideas that have been proposed about it? Yeah. I mean, like anything you have, you have false teaching around this that goes directly against scripture. Then you also have half truths. These, these are always dangerous and sometimes harder to spot. I love J.I. Packer calls them half-truths masquerading as the whole truth. Hmm. And then I think what you have in the doctrine of atonement, I think one of the biggest problems is you have this reductionism that's taken place. So what I mean by that is when, when you get into atonement discussions, the way it's typically happened in the last 150 years in theology is, all right, here's these options of theories. And you have the penal substitution theory, and you have the Christus Victor theory, and you have the moral exemplar theory. And you've got to choose which one of those you think is right, because the other ones are wrong. And so you have these mutually exclusive theories that try and explain everything. And the problem is here, what they do is they, they, try to force us to choose between truths of scripture. Did Jesus, you know, satisfy the wrath of God or did he defeat demons and Satan or did he display his love on the cross as an example for us? Man, I want to be able to go to scripture and say, clearly he did all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it might seem silly even that we get to that point of like feeling like it's an either or But that's really the way that the discussion has developed. It's not this, it's that. And a lot of that just, it's played out historically of, I call it pendulum swinging reductionism, that you get people arguing against one thing and then somebody argues against that and and it just gradually gets further and further apart to where the people who are talking about Christ's victory on the cross don't want to say anything about forgiveness of sins and vice versa. And so I think that's a massive problem in the doctrine of atonement. And I want people to be able to embrace a full, a multi-dimensional view of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Well, you say on page 12 that many theories of atonement have gone awry because they're insufficiently Trinitarian. Maybe you could mm-hmm. explain that a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is so important. Yeah. 
think a lot of the criticisms of penal substitution have come in this vein of people, well, maybe it's the critic who doesn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity behind it, but oftentimes it's actually the preacher who's preaching the cross who doesn't have a fully Trinitarian theology and then has set us up for failure. So let's use a classic example. I heard this as a kid. It's, it's, I feel like it's been one of the most common illustrations is the train tracks illustration, right? So there's a father, he's a train conductor. He looks down one day and his kid's playing in the, in the train tracks. But then he looks up and he sees that a train is coming. And, and so he has a decision to make. He either has to, if he switches the tracks, it will kill his son, but he'll save everyone on the train. Or he, he spares his son, but then everyone on the train dies. And so what the father does is he sacrifices his son to save all the people. Now, there, and, and then the preacher turns that and say, God sacrificed his son to save you. Now, there's lots of like half-truths in there. And, the, and even the language, God sacrificing his son to save people, that sounds really biblical, right? But the problem with that story is, is that the son in the story is blindsided. He, he's just playing in the train tracks and all of a sudden, next <laughs> thing you know, he gets killed by his dad and he has no idea what's going on. So like the son's not involved. The father is, is blindsiding the son and he doesn't actually know the people on the tracks or, or sorry, on, who are in the train on the tracks. He doesn't actually know them. It seems like it's more like this utilitarian exercise of like, well, it's better to save many people than to save one. So I'll sacrifice the son for them. Uh, so that reveal, that's where, when you have that kind of story behind the cross, it's where you get into these accusations of an angry father killing a loving son, or that's child abuse for a father to intentionally wound his son. All of that is insufficiently Trinitarian. So I would say that the atonement is the apex of the triune mission of God. When we talk about the cross, we are talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work to reconcile sinners and to renew creation. And so you see this like in 2 Corinthians 5, it's God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so what we see throughout the, the biblical story is God at work, the triune God, and I think it's centered on Christ. God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. But Jesus is the son of the father who's empowered by the spirit to accomplish the triune mission of atonement. And so I think when we have a fully Trinitarian understanding of who God is and how God works and how he reveals himself, then it changes the way that we see the cross. Yes, Jesus bears wrath in our place and he bears our judgment. And Jesus, as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who dies. And yet he's doing so fully united with father and son. Yeah, that's good. We just recently had an episode on um, Unitarianism and just kind of dealing with some of the Unitarian claims and things like that. And that's one of the things that it ends up with is, right, this kind of like salvation by proxy, God essentially getting someone else to do the dirty work and mm -hmm. in a, as opposed to a Trinitarian view, which shows the God who saves, yeah. God our Savior, as he's called in Titus 1, for example. Yeah, mm -hmm. so important. Okay, so what are some other common fallacies that when it comes to understanding 
the atonement. On pages 16 and 17, you talk about this fallacy of just like the, the reductionist view of just like going to heaven when you die. Like what, what's wrong with that? I think that's commonly preached, but why would you say that that's maybe true, but not enough? Yeah. So in that section, I'm talking about how the, the story that we frame the atonement with is going to shape the meaning of what Christ accomplishes on the cross. And so one of the most common frameworks in American Christianity is the, the basic story of the Bible is the goal is going to heaven when you die, right? And I'm a sinner and God sends his son, he dies, and so that I can go to heaven when I die. And so what it does is it reduces the cross essentially to an individual transaction that's like a ticket to heaven. It doesn't have anything to do with community, being adopted into the family of God. It really doesn't have anything to do with my life between now and when I die. And it doesn't have anything to do with creation. God, it's, it's usually this understanding of God kind of plucking my soul out of this corrupt earth and taking my soul to this disembodied existence. And so when that's your story, when, when, when you understand the, the story of scripture as the goal is to go to heaven when I die, then it reduces the cross to this individual transaction that affects my soul, but not my body, not the creation, has nothing to do with community. I think that's very different than what you see in scripture. And the, the story that I, that I want to frame the atonement with and that I would argue is, is really like the, the meta-narrative scripture is the story of the kingdom. And there's lots of ways that you can summarize the story of the Bible. So I don't want to say that's the only way, but it is the way that Jesus did it. <laughs> if I can, mm. if I can uh, say it like that. I mean, Jesus, opening words of his mouth, he begins his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? So he's saying the kingdom is here. This is the apex of the story. And so when you understand a kingdom story, which is about... God renewing all of creation and reconciling his image bearers into a covenant relationship with him, then that changes what Christ accomplishes on the cross. That, yeah, he's saving my soul. That's correct, but it's incomplete. He's also redeeming my body. He's redeeming creation. And one of the things I love about kingdom, this, this idea of kingdom, is it's, it's intrinsically communal. So, so through the blood of Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We were orphans and we've been made sons and daughters and given a seat at the table. I mean, what a beautiful picture of what Christ has accomplished. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Justin Thomas, president of Calvary Chapel Bible College. I wanna invite you to visit our beautiful new campus located in the mountains of Southern California. CCBC offers a unique blend of theological training and practical education, equipping students to make a difference. With experienced faculty, supportive community, and a commitment to excellence, CCBC is the perfect foundation for every calling in life and ministry. If you or anyone you know is looking for a place to grow, check us out at ccbc.info. CCBC, a solid foundation for every calling. So you mentioned that the meaning of the cross in many ways is determined by the narrative 
within which it's understood. And, and I understand you're saying the kingdom narrative, that kind of biblical theology view of the mm-hmm. entire scripture is the best one. What do you think are some other common narratives that are put forward? So there's the go to heaven when you die one. What, what about some other common narratives that you think shape the way people view the cross? Yeah. So one of the other ones that I talk about is like the make the world a better place narrative. And this plays out in different ways. I mean, I think you you see this in the social gospel in the 30s and 40s in the United States coming out of New York City, um, where what you had going on then was you see a lot of poverty in New York, the Depression, and people in the church kind of saying, you know, we're sitting around here talking about sin and salvation while people are starving outside. And I think what starts in a good impulse for them is to say, let's go and feed the hungry and care for the poor. That's a, that's a good impulse. That's a biblical command. What happened with them is they said they, they ended up doing one to the exclusion of the other and redefining the gospel itself, saying the gospel isn't about sin and salvation and eternity. It's, about, it's not about what God has done for us back then and how, what it means uh, a thousand years from now. It's the gospel is about what we can do today to show God's love to people. And so, you know, it, it sounds really religious and spiritual, but really you've inverted the gospel by saying mm-hmm. it's not about what God has done for us. It's about what we do for the world. And so then the gospel message, the good news becomes that we get to go out and serve the poor and feed the hungry and all that. And, and so, I mean, you have that in, in the 30s, 40s in America but you see it a lot today, even in like kind of a social justice movement, a secu- I should say a secular social justice movement that is, that's very kind of like advocacy driven or championing these causes and we rally around that. But it's really like, it's, 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 uh, it's about what we do to make the world a better place. And so if you understand, if, if that's your narrative that, that the story, the story that we're a part of is one where we are going to create this utopia and, you know, anyone else is on the wrong side of history and humanity is progressing based off of our potential to all of this. If that's your narrative and you look at the cross, then the meaning that you can get out of the cross is, well, Jesus is an example for us. He sacrificed himself for others. Um, he, he was faithful in suffering. And look, I, I'm... Clearly, Jesus is our example. So there's a half-truth in there. But the danger is if you reduce Jesus to an example at the expense of him being a savior. And so the, the scripture would respond to that story and say, we're not in a world where humans are neutral and just need to have their potential realized so that they can bring heaven on earth. No, we're in a world where we've fallen in sin we're spiritually dead. We're enemies of God. We need to be, we need to be saved, rescued. We need to be brought to life. And then we get to participate in the work that God is doing in the world. So we want to see Christ as an example, but he's a savior before he's an example. And then the work that we're doing in the world, which again, we're called to serve the poor, feed the hungry, you know, set the, the oppressed free. When we do that, we're we're joining in the work of Christ and what he's doing there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so let's draw that out a little bit more with this kingdom idea because, you know, on the one hand, like you said, there's this attitude that developed in the 30s, 40s of saying, like, why are we talking about sin and eternal life when people are starving? To Today, I do see a lot of, you know, in more conservative circles, then you'll start to see the opposite end of that spectrum where people say, why are we spending resources trying to feed the poor at all? Because Jesus said, you know, the poor you always have with you, and it's all going to burn anyway. So shouldn't we mm-hmm. just, you know, if the world's a sinking ship, then shouldn't we just be trying to get people in the lifeboats? So how does the kingdom narrative speak to that? Yeah, it's really important because I think the danger is, is it's again, it's that pendulum swinging reductionism. It's word or deed, you know, it's people's souls or their stomachs. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see throughout scripture that's so clear is that God cares about it all. Now, I do think there's a priority to the spiritual and what's eternal. I mean, you see that in, in especially in 2 Corinthians talks about that explicitly. But I mean, you could, I would go back all the way to the creation narrative. God created us body and soul, and it was all good. He didn't create us as souls who had to deal with his body for a while so then we could escape it. That's not Christianity. That's that's Greek. That's that's Greek philosophy. So we're created body and soul. And then and then you have I mean in the Old Testament. I mean land is a really big deal. Mm. The dirt. I mean I mean physical material dirt matters to God and it's it's and and so you see that playing all the way throughout of God renewing all of creation. And then in the New Testament of physical bodies. So when we look to the life of Jesus, Jesus cares for people spiritually and physically. He's feeding their souls and he's feeding their bodies. So what I would say is it, we want to be like Jesus and we want to embrace the whole counsel of God rather than cherry picking a few verses here and a few verses there. So, you know, I like that. I, I, John Piper said something like, I care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. Mm. And I, I think that captures like the, both the tension and the priority that we should care about people, uh, mind, body, and soul, because God does. And then the, I do think that the spiritual is at the core of what it means to be human and that e- and eternity is real. So I do think there's a priority towards evangelism, towards soul care, but not to the neglect of somebody's physical needs or emotional needs or mental needs. We need to see people holistically as God does. So you also mentioned another, you know, reductionist narrative, which would be like the American dream narrative. Maybe explain that. Yeah. I mean, this is like, if you... I think a lot of us don't realize how much we live by this narrative. When in the book I talk about like master narratives and they're often they're often unseen, they're more implicit. But if you grow up in America, the water that you're swimming in, the air that you're breathing is that the goal is individual happiness. And the means that I get there is independent strength. So like to to make myself, to create myself, to be strong. I don't need other people and to achieve this individual happiness. The, and, and so it's the sovereign, it's the sovereign self. 
That's the narrative, the sovereign self. And what happens when then you try to include Christianity with that is we try, rather than worshiping Jesus, we try to use Jesus. We try to co-opt his power for our purposes. So if, I mean, if you look through scripture, what you're seeing is you're seeing God's power for God's purposes. And that's what we're called to appeal to and live by. And what we try to do in the American dream narrative is we say, okay, I've got these purposes. I want to have a great home and a successful career and be really good looking and have a lot of followers on social media that like, that's the American dream. And, and I'm going to use God's power for my purposes. And so we've got to be able to, to recognize that for what it is and then recognize the, I think how offensive it is to God when we try to, to use his power and just religiosity to achieve those means. When we approach the cross and say, oh, okay, Jesus died so that I can have all the blessings that I want. And this is where you start to merge into a prosperity gospel which, uh, you know, I don't know where, where the line starts and stops in terms of the American dream and a prosperity gospel, but it's where you merge into that of, well, you, you take kind of the American aims or outcomes. Well, personal happiness is the goal. God wants me to be happy, right? And, and so then the gifts that he's giving me from salvation are however I define them in American luxury. Um, so, Man, I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff that God responds in the Old Testament to by saying, "I hate your religious feasts. <laughs> like, mm. shut the doors. I'm not listening to your prayers anymore." That's where I think I, I think that like self righteous religion that tries to use God is even more offensive to God than the person who's out there shaking their fist at God, saying, "I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm just going to follow my desires." Because we're all we're both rebelling against God, but one of them's claiming to be godly in the process and trying to use God for their own purposes. So, man, I think we I think we really need to like acknowledge that for what it is, this narrative of the sovereign self, and recognize how it makes us interpret the cross in the wrong way. That Jesus died to give me everything that I want, and and be able to rebuke that, die to self. And say, no, I, the cross calls me to deny myself, calls me to self-giving love and to take up my cross and follow my crucified and resurrected Savior. Hmm. You say on page 13 that our world culture, the popular culture, reflects intrinsic longings for atonement. In other mm -hmm. words, like this desire for atonement, it isn't something that's totally foreign to us in a way it's kind of built into us and that's reflected in things that we see in popular culture. I was curious if you could just give us some examples of that and explain it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think we all recognize that something's off in the world. Something's wrong. Things aren't the way that they should be, which is why I think there's this strong sense of like justice today of seeking justice. And everybody walks around dealing with guilt and shame. And we're longing for ways to deal with that. We're longing for ways to deal with our guilt. We're longing for things to be made right. And so we're looking, we're looking for atonement. That's what atonement is about. 
about dealing with guilt and shame, setting things right that have been made wrong. And so what, what we do though, is we turn that inward and we say, how can I atone for my mistakes? Right. I mean, you even have collective examples of this. I mean, I mentioned some examples in the book of, you know, like headlines of how can, how can this nation atone for it, the sins of its past, that kind of thing. Or how can, okay, I can acknowledge I've made mistakes in my life, but I can, how can I atone for those? And when we say that, we're like, how can we make amends? How can we make it right? But what we fail to recognize there is the, the more we often do that, the more we dig ourselves deeper in a hole. We, we deal with our sin in sinful ways. And in trying to heal our brokenness, we create more brokenness. And so what, I mean, what we need and what we ultimately long for is something, someone that could come from the outside and, and bring healing and wholeness in this mess that we've created. So I just, I think you see it cropping up all over the place. And it happens in all different ways. I mean, some of it's just religiosity, like, you know, we, we supposedly live in this secular society, but religiosity is just cropping up all over the place because we're, humans are, are, are religious beings. We can't get around it. I mean, dogs bark, swim, fish swim, humans worship. Like we're, we're made for that. And so we're just looking at different places. I mean, where I live in Los Angeles, man, there's like psychic shops all over the place and cultic activity all over the place. Witchcraft is rampant. That's not only in LA, but it's the fastest growing religion in America. So people are longing for a way to deal with their guilt and shame. They're longing for power. They're longing for things to be made right. In a lot of ways, I, I see it as it's such an incredible opportunity for us to be able to say, there's a way. Mm. God has done all that's necessary to deal with our guilt and shame for things to be made right, to know that you're reconciled to your maker, that you have a purpose that that's not as ephemeral as your career. I mean, this is why it's good news, right? That I think mm. that what people are longing for, there there is reality. There's something there that will fulfill what they're longing for. Mm. That's great. What do you hope that people will come away from this book knowing, thinking, feeling? I mean, I hope it's a good question. I think that I want people to understand the cross in a biblical sense, but, but that's not the end goal. Understanding is never the end goal. Theology is for life and for worship. And so I think what I would hope is that people would understand what Christ accomplished on the cross. And it would lead then to a transformed life for the glory of God. That, I mean, I think about it like this. If we can understand the finished work of Christ, I mean, it's just amazing. I, mean, I think it's, it's mind-blowing. We can understand it. We can never like fully capture it. But if we can understand the finished work of Christ and then live in light of it every day, if I get to wake up every, every morning and say, I'm justified. I don't have to justify myself through my work today. Hmm. Or if we can wake up every morning and say, because of the cross, God accepts me in Christ. I don't have to go out and be desperate to earn people's acceptance today. Uh, I've been declared righteous. I get to go and live out of that identity. If we can live in light of the finished work of Christ, that's that's my hope for people and recognize that that 
the the cross reminds us that God is with us in our weakness and our suffering and our pain, and that while the kingdom is our eternal glory and our hope, we live in a cross-shaped kingdom right now. And what that does is it, it gives us the right expectations that the kingdom has come. And so we should expect victory, forgiveness, peace, growth, overcoming sin. And yet the kingdom has not been fully consummated. And in this age, the kingdom is hidden beneath the cross. And the kingdom advances in our sacrifice and our suffering. And so I hope people, I hope people's understanding of the cross would lead to a life transformed by the cross. And then one of worship. I just think the more we understand the depths of the cross, the more we will worship God with with just a fullness of like, wow, God is, you know, if if you if you come to the cross thinking only Jesus died to forgive my sins, which is so important, just amazing. But if but if you only think that, and then you read the book and you're like, oh, it's so much more than that. He had, he died to adopt us into a family. He died to justify us. He, he died that we might experience life in God. He died for to, the healing of our wounds, both emotional and physical. He died. And it like, my hope is that it's just expanding people's view of God and it leads to greater and greater worship. Yeah, that's so good. So it's not just like a theoretical thing. I mean, it's extremely practical and its implications for life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And sorry, one other thing I want to add, Nick, with that is, is, the the horizontal dimensions of reconciliation that I, I hope an outworking of us understanding the cross is that we're a people of reconciliation. And, and in scripture, reconciliation is vertical and horizontal. We're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another. And one of the things I, I argue in the book is that that relational communal reconciliation isn't just an implication of the cross. It's intrinsic to the cross. It happens at the same time, in the same sense that like when I was born, I was born um, simultaneously a son and a brother because I have an older brother. And when when we are born again um, through Christ's atoning work, we are adopted into a family where God is our father and we have one another as brothers and sisters. So that that communal nature of the faith, but then also reconciliation is we're a people who have been reconciled to God, who have been reconciled to one another, and we should be then ambassadors of reconciliation. And man, I mean, what a timely message for a world that's divided by sin and a church that's often been divided. So I think that's one practical outworking. And that, I mean, you could, you could play that out in a lot of different ways. And I do in the book, but that means a ton in terms of racial injustice and the need for racial reconciliation. It means a lot for our political landscape right now. So that aspect of the cross is really important. Good. Where can people find your teachings or other writings you've done? Where can they keep up with you online? Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, my, I'm preaching most Sundays at Reality LA and our sermons are on our website, realityla.com. I'm on Twitter, Instagram trying to decide whether I should be on or try and keep up with other accounts. But those are the main places that I'm at. So yeah, I think those, those are the main places that people can find me online. My books are on Amazon. Awesome. 
Well, hey, thanks, Jeremy, so much. It's been a great discussion hearing about this, and I really enjoyed your book, and I'd recommend people check it out. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they'll be delivered right to your podcast app. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. If this podcast was helpful, please share it with others. Thanks for listening, and until next time, God bless you. Thank you.